0: Magic the Gathering is a difficult game, made even more so by the fact that you can talk to a longtime player and still walk away having no idea what they said. We're here to keep you up to date on magic news and format changes just like your favorite FNM end boss would. Except you don't have to smile and nod when they talk about threatening your mongoose. I'm Kyle, a tournament grinder and general modern enthusiast. I'm Anthony, a tournament grinder,
1: FNMN boss, and lover of standard in spite of how much it loves to hurt me. And, and we're, we're the, the Goblin, Goblin Trashmasters! Trashmasters.
0: Alright everyone, today we're going to be talking about tournament prep where we go over a singular aspect of preparing for a competitive tournament anthony and i have prepared for you know a lot of tournaments over the years so we have some pretty strong opinions on how to do it right today we're gonna do a deep dive on choosing a deck uh the first topic we're going to talk about is factors to consider so if you want to jump right into this and just you know tell us what you're considering like You know, the first year you found a tournament, you want to play in in it, but you don't know what what deck you're choosing. What factors go into your choice?
1: The first thing I want to think about is I want to just, honest to goodness, give myself a rating, let's say one to five, of how familiar am I with a specific archetype, right? Um, With one being, I've never picked Mm -hmm. this deck up before in my life versus I am Tom Ross playing Legacy Infect. Literally no one understands the workings of this deck better than I do. It is not possible. And you also want to consider like your familiarity with the format as a whole, right? As mm-hmm. unpleasant as it may be, card availability matters too. You, you want to want to make sure that the deck you are planning to play for your high stakes event is one that you can actually put together and not be jamming extra basic lands or making weird changes at the last minute
0: or going to a vendor you know an hour before
1: yeah you're just setting yourself up for failure with stuff like that so like make sure you have your stuff yeah. sourced right
0: i mean and that's i think that's the the best advice i can give we're just like considering what you're doing you know do i have the cards for it Do I know someone who has the cards for it? Uh, Do I... Uh, Can I get them, right? Yeah. In a a timely and efficient manner. Not like, oh, I'll order them like...
1: Yeah, I'm going to order them from TCG Player. Great. They'll be here in three months. The format will have rotated by then.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Ooh, one thing before we go, and it's my least favorite factor to consider, is the big air quotes, meta game. What is the meta game shaping up to be? Um, we're going <laughs> to talk about this more later, but this should be the bottom of your factors to consider list. And it becomes less impactful, the bigger the format is. So like you can say, oh, modern, a hundred percent Merktide is 20% of the metagame. Okay. That means one out of every five matches you play is going to be against Merktide. If the room you're in is indicative of the metagame percentages that you got from god forbid mtg goldfish there's so many variables involved i just don't see how you can meaningfully control for all of them right
0: yeah and you know especially in a format like modern it's it gets really tough because sometimes you'll just run into jank and other days you're just like i've only played against murktide i've only Mm -hmm. played against five color piles and then some days you're like i played against soul sisters in round one Yes, exactly.
1: But, like, on the topic specifically of those metagame calls, like, even decks that are about to get banned, they're too good, right? Like, think Hogak, right before Bridge got the
0: axe. Or or, or Urza, right before um, Mox Opal and Oko and Sims got banned. were ready you know. for
1: those decks. They had main deck Urza tech, right? And then they just didn't play against Urza for the first three rounds. And they were out of the tournament.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was the same with that Mythic Championship with, you know, the Hogek Summer. The most played card was Leyline of the Void. And some people just didn't play against Hogak. Like, they were playing against Tron and, like...
1: Like, yeah, imagine, like, you go, Okay, done mulliganing. I have pre-game effects. And then you put a Leyline of the Void into play and your opponent goes, Oh, cool. Uh, Urza's mind tap, play Expedition Map, your turn. <laughs>
0: like, Yeah, or they just go, like... A horizon canopy aether vial and you're just like oh that sort of stuff like
1: (laughs) like i said we're gonna talk more about some some of this uh the cute stuff like that later but we spent a lot of time talking about metagame calls but the main impression i want to get across like the main thing that i really care about is don't let your perception of the metagame shape too much of what you're doing deck selection wise right Don't play a deck that you're way less familiar with because it's a good metagame call, especially if you're playing in an open event that anybody can sign up for, and you're playing in a big, wide format. You're sacrificing definite win percentage for a better theoretical win percentage at some point in the future, I don't, I don't love it, and that's assuming that you are the prognostic Sphinx, and you <laughs> have your metagame
0: call is exactly <laughs> correct. You're like, I think Mono
1: Green's gonna have a really big weekend in Pioneer this this weekend. Therefore, I'm gonna play gruel and you're right. Mono Green occupies thirty percent of the metagame. You play. 10 rounds and you see it 3 times and then you lose all your other matchups, that's not a winning tournament and you've sacrificed all of your other matchups to play this no really sketchy cruel aggro deck.
0: Yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like, sometimes a lot of players think they're like, oh, I got it, I got the, the spicy tech, I got the deck that's gonna take over as long as I play this, this, and that and most of the time players do that and they just don't play against the... I
1: feelings about exactly that
0: <laughs> yeah uh and uh it'll segment into our next one where we talk about uh r- risk aversion where it's when you selecting a deck, or when you're selecting a deck choosing the best one in the format most of the time is probably the best thing to do but also with what we talked about previously where it's just if it's the best deck in the format That doesn't mean you have to play it. Let's say the best deck in the format is the deck that you love to play. That's your archetype. Great. But if it's, yeah, but if it's not, I wouldn't force it because you just won't have a good time. You probably won't play as well. And you probably won't be as knowledgeable as somebody that has played that deck for a very long time. Oh, absolutely. I so second
1: that. Uh, I can tell you some examples from Standard in the past where the Black-Green Scales deck with like Rishkar, Prima Renegade, and Windy Constrictor and all that. That was just like the best deck in that format for a while. And I played it because it was the best deck. And it was awful. Like, I felt terrible the whole time. That was one of those things we were talking about before when you're thinking of factors to consider. My familiarity with that sort of... With that deck was just very low comparatively to the kind of blue white mm-hmm. flash decks that were in the format at the time. That I was really just hurting my
0: own. Win yeah, percentage and I think that's the, the right that way to say it. it like you're you forcing it. it. I don't think you want to force anything when you're playing in a competitive space, where it's just the deck might be the best deck in the format. It's like 30 percent of the meta. It's probably gonna get banned. Things along those lines. But if you just don't like playing it and don't have a good record with it, it's better to play something you know, something you're comfortable with, something you're you're good at. Oh, 100%.
1: Fun matters, right? Like, having fun with the deck you're playing matters, not even just from a win percentage perspective, right? Just like, yeah. are you enjoying yourself <laughs> while you are playing this game? It is a game. You need to be enjoying yourself while you're playing the game. Because if you're not enjoying yourself while you're playing the game, no matter how good the prize support is for a tournament, your EV for any open tournament you're entering is probably mm-hmm. going to be lower than working a shift at a, at a McDonald's, right? You're going to spike some and do a lot better than a shift at McDonald's, but for the most part, your what your expected return on your investment is is going to be less dollar bills per hour than if you just worked any
0: shift at a, a, mm-hmm. a restaurant, any
1: minimum wage job. And I like to keep that in mind that yeah, at the I end mean, of the
0: day, that's, what you're that's doing how I has feel to when be I, fun or it's just decks, not going to be worth where, it. Like I've done some testing with certain ones and you know, it. I just, I don't like it. I don't have any fun even when I'm winning with the decks. And if I'm not having like a good time or enjoying myself, it's like, Oh, maybe I'll look somewhere else. And then there's the, the reverse of it where I really like the deck. It's super fun, but I just keep freaking losing with it. Now, you picked a deck. What do? What do indeed?
1: First thing I'm doing when I've picked a deck is I go and I find an established real list. And by an established list, what I mean is I go to MTG Top 8. Not MTG Goldfish. You're... Oh my god. Okay, so MTG Goldfish, for those of you who don't know, curates their results. They like featuring things that are different and fun and interesting, which is great if you're trying to find a deck that's different or fun or interesting. But if you're trying to find a stock version of a list that you've already decided on, I think MTG Goldfish's results make it too like xenophilic for making a good database decision, right? They're going to yeah. want to feature the cool wacky out there
0: stuff. The fun jank. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the versions of murtide that are making
1: it onto the front page of MTG Goldfish are usually going to are, are going to have like some wacky one-ups in there, which is great, mm-hmm. but not generally for what I'm trying to do at this point in my deck selection. In Magic we always Have to make judgments with a small sample size. There's just not enough time. There's not enough data about it. This game is big, but it's not big enough to have people just crunching numbers all the time. We don't have baseball Mm. stats here. No.
0: Our statistician is just, uh, you know, a former pro Frank Karsten, who's just crunching the numbers because he's bored. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, we would need dozens of Frank Karstens to come anything close to approaching usable data. So we understand mm. that our sample sizes are small.
0: MTG top eight is perfect because it's in the title. Yep. Most of the decks you look at, they top aided. They did the thing. Mm-hmm. They won a lot. So if you want a stock list, a very good list, you go there.
1: Like we were talking about the sample size being so small. If you use MTG Goldfish. Your sample size is still small, but it's small and bad now.
0: You never want somebody to call your deck little buddy. (laughs) Little buddy. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's no where to look, what to look for. I think that's the biggest thing. And also listen to players you know and respect. I think that's also a big thing. Talk to your friends who play, Talk if you know anybody that's like, has multiple top eights as one, you know, one K's, you know, big tournaments, you, you know, you know them. And if you're lucky enough to know somebody who's been a pro like now or um, in the past, who is really, really good at magic, just listen to them yeah. and they can tell you and you can make your own decision from there.
1: Improving at magic is such a collaborative exercise, right? Like.
0: I don't know oh,
1: anybody yeah. that is. I, I don't know anybody that I would consider very good at this game that isn't also incredibly willing to listen and talk through things with people. I find that for the most part, the people that issue decrees from on high and make like wildly confident declarative statements about decks and are not willing to hear any contrary opinions are usually a lot less good than they think they
0: are. Yeah, and I think that's the the worst quality, not only in Magic players, but in people, when, you know, they, they can't be wrong. Oh, yeah. No matter what. It's like, nope, what I say goes, this is correct.
1: There's the saying in Magic, like, good players make mistakes. Bad players never make mistakes. Mm-hmm. The person that says that they played perfectly every game and O three 3 dropped their local IQ, is it technically possible that they did so? I mean, yeah, it's possible. Do I think that's what happened? Not remotely. I do not believe that for a second. Because uh, bad players will always find a way to make the mistakes not their fault or outside of their control completely being able to id mistakes that you have made is really powerful and if you are listening to other people you're just you you become superhuman at iding mistakes right because mm-hmm. like i'm looking at my own games i can find some mistakes but i guarantee you other people watching my games can find a lot more than i can we've got a deck right and we've got our mm-hmm. attitudes sorted out about how we're going to approach that deck
0: we got the deck we know what we're doing we're ready
1: next i want to look at more than one list for it right i want to go down and see what a bunch of the different lists say and see what the general consensus is and then build the deck that is as close to the consensus as i can because i don't have infinite time i can't run this list through, some, through thousands and thousands of leagues and get really intricate data on if two Ledger Shredders is way better than three or if one Ledger Shredder yep. is way better than two. You, you're a human being. You do not have the time in the day to make those determinations, right? You kind of have to rely at some amount on the group as a whole. Mm-hmm. Get the deck together and then just play some games with it in paper.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the best thing you can do cuz like like that was a perfect point. Nobody has time to be like, "Oh, I'll crunch the numbers, 2 is better than 3 or 3 is better than 2 because I have uh, this percentage chance of drawing it." In these matchups like, "No, just play with the deck, see how it feels." Cuz there's some things in Magic you can't really equate and you just have to know where it's like, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. It's just a feeling. It's like, oh, this card felt good. Mm-hmm. That's not just a way of saying like, oh, it performed well. Like, no, it just felt good when I played it, when it was when, when I like had it in my strategy, my gameplay and all that. It's just, there's not, no actual data that says, oh, this is the right thing. It's like, no, I feel more comfortable playing it this way. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you have to extrapolate based on small sample sizes because that's all you have to work mm-hmm. with right. Mm-hmm. And the reason I like getting paper games in with it is I want to get used to the way the physical cards and the actions I need to take with those cards feel in my hands when I'm going through the motions. Like I play a lot of mono green and pioneer because of that I'm able to play very very quickly and I'm able to make better decisions with less effort than somebody who is less physically familiar with the deck. If I'm resolving an oath of Nyssa, that three cards is Oath of Dissa, pick up three cards, just feels correct. If I accidentally grab a fourth card, like two sleeves stick together or something like that, before I even look at them, that feels weird to me. Yep. And uh, same deck, if I am picking up from Cavalier and I don't have five cards off, reveal, I'm not revealing five cards off the top, that doesn't feel right. Um, and I don't have to waste mental bandwidth thinking about how many cards I need to pick up or... Where they go when I'm done searching them. Cavalier goes to the graveyard. Mm -hmm. That just, I'm used to that motion of pick up five, put a land into play, put the rest into the graveyard. Uh, If I'm resolving a storm, I pick up my five cards, hold them a different way, pick out two cards, put them onto the field, and then put the leftovers from storm on the bottom. Like, playing digitally is good. It really does kind of force you to learn the rules really well you don't get to shortcut anything so you know a lot of interactions from playing digitally but at the end of the day i don't think anything replaces just getting in your reps of putting rectangles onto the table and you want to put the rectangles onto the table in the right
0: order yeah a hundred percent and especially if you're playing any deck that's somewhat intricate not not only combo decks But something where you know it's weird board states or you have to you know you have to delve you have to you know reveal three cards you have to search your library you know it's oath of nissa and cavalier are prime examples of like you know it's it feels weird when it's four instead of three so i know not to get like game misconduct when you're playing in paper yeah, and you know, and for me, like playing Yawgmoth in modern goldfishing was very, very important. So I could do the loop <laughs> with rectangles in my hand on the table and actually see how it plays out. Because it's much different when you play it on on Magic Online than when you play yeah. it in paper. And with men, it, when it's a combo deck like Yawgmoth, that's you need at least four pieces on the battlefield. You have to be, and it's weird. You know, it's 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 a very difficult thing to explain. And, I, and I've i gotten better at explaining it because I was able to sit down, play games of paper magic, goldfish, do all those things so I can get the feel for it. And when I, you know, go to an RC or, or, or RCQ and I actually play against a real person, I'm not fumbling, you know, with my cards. I'm not, you know, misplaying because I just don't know what to do or not don't know how to handle my physical paper cards because I've only been playing online.
1: Yeah, I just feel like don't don't get yourself extra like looking at extra cards violations that you
0: can yeah, only... d- yeah, don't get game as context because you just haven't played in paper in a while.
1: Yeah, it's just an important thing to just physically get used to it. I have a thing that is really important outside of you've selected your deck you've gotten the cards together, you have played some paper games against an opponent, against a few different decks, against a goldfish, whatever you need to do. This is the point where I have to tell people over and over and over again, this spiel, this speech, and I'm going to say it now so that you have access to it, so that the next time you're thinking of putting something fucking stupid in your deck, you just
0: don't instead. It's on record now. You
1: have it. And if you need to like, Play this back later. If anybody needs to play this back later, please do so. Please let me tell you no. Okay, you may think that you have found, in quotes, the tech that no one else in the world has found. You might be right, but you're probably not. If I had to bet, I would bet that you are not right. You are betting your entry fee and the time it takes you to play in the tournament and the time it takes you to get to the tournament, that you, as a 1 out of 5, 2 out of 5, 3 out of 5, whatever score you gave yourself at the beginning, know more about this format and this deck than the players that gave themselves a 5, that you know better than the Tom Rosses of the world. Be humble. Be humble. It will make you better at magic. There's no more effective way for your growth to plateau than to think that you know enough and no longer need to consider other people's contributions. So stop. Please put that funky one-of for the grindy matchups, TM, back into your trade binder. Don't write it down on your deck registration sheet. Don't do it. Put it away. Play it in Commander or something, whatever. But just give yourself the best chance you can to win and the best chance you can to win does not involve you declaring that you have found something that no one else in the world was able to do.
0: Uh, I wholeheartedly agree. because and, and there are times where you're like, oh, I'm trying this one of in the main or the side, and somebody has tried it, or it's been in stock lists, or it's fallen out of favor, or it's a, a player preference. That's always fine. You know, it just depends on like, hey, yo, I like playing this instead of this because it's been better for me and I feel more comfortable playing it. It's like, that's fine. It's been a top eight list. You've you've played against it and you've seen it. We're talking about the like, oh no, I got it. No one's ever seen this. It's like, yeah, because it's terrible. Yeah,
1: my dumb ass putting Geist of St. Traffed into Red White Burn as the sideboard tech, like. no. (laughs) like i wish somebody had told me to shut up put it back in the binder before i registered that i lost a lot of games that i
0: shouldn't have lost yeah and you know i think a lot of it comes from people don't really just want to net deck and get it oh you just got a you know a top eight list online and just played it it's like yeah because it's fucking burn it's free
1: on the internet i can do this yeah
0: yeah like oh this one an event sweet i like that deck i'll play it I'm not going to put my fun spicy one of in the deck. Cause you're going to lose because of it. And like, if it's an FM and you're like, Hey, I want to be goofy and play it. Go for it. No one cares. It's FM, It's fun. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to an RCQ and like, I want to win. And you're playing just random, stupid, janky cards. You're you, don't be mad when you get dumpstered by everybody.
1: Yeah. If you want to play the funky one of go with God, enjoy yourself. <laughs> I hope it brings you peace. Please do yeah. not complain about your win percentage. I don't want to hear your bad beats about how unlucky you were to draw the sideboard card that you put in your deck.
0: Yeah, when you play bad cards in your deck, you draw them. Like
1: if you put bad cards in your deck, you're going to draw them, and then you're—it's <laughs> so bad.
0: Yeah, you never—you never draw your good ones. <laughs> never.
1: Kyle, the last thing I've got on this that I do in my mental process once selecting a deck. Is lock-in. You know those, like, competitive cooking shows where the timer runs out and they say, okay,
0: ladles down, hands up. Yep. Okay, I literally do that. I literally
1: pull my hands back from what I'm doing once I'm done. Just lock-in. Stop tinkering. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of, like, really good decks over the years get absolutely annihilated by last minute changes. The percentage points that you might, keyword might, gain by making a last minute tweak is going to be lost again and then probably some by shifting your list around. Basically, I don't like making changes the last two days before an event. Type out your deck list, make it inconvenient to shift things around because it feels really bad when you crack your scalding tarn and go looking for a basic mountain or something like that and You're scrolling through your deck and you're looking and you can't find it. And then you realize that you cut your last basic mountain from the deck for a second copy of Sokinson.
0: Another red source that's not fetchable.
1: Yeah. You just like, you just cut that basic because you're like, I don't really need it. But in that moment, you locked yourself into a play where you really did need that basic. Mm -hmm. You know? You should be able to know what's in your deck, and you can't do that if you're trying to memorize a moving target, right?
0: Yeah, and it, that's best. Like you know, lock say your events on a Saturday, lock in your deck by Thursday or Friday at like the absolute latest, yeah. and don't don't type your deck list up and leave it alone. Because um, this is this is a, a story I I tell people a lot, and it it's not it's similar, and the sentiment is the same, but you never want to be Ross Merriam in the top eight of an SEG modern event and you summoners pack for a reclamation sage and you forgot to put it in your deck. It's still in your sideboard. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You don't want to be in a situation like that. And if you want to see the clip, he ended up winning that game. Miraculously, it was crazy, but they just cut to the camera and he just like, he looks at his sideboard and he just has the, Oh shit face. He's like you never want to be in that situation you never want to like oh I'm gonna tinker with my deck the day before and then it, the worst is you tinker with your deck and you don't up, uh, update your deck list you turn it in it's already typed up and the judge is like hey you don't have this card in your deck anymore
1: it's a basic land now
0: yeah and you, you just you just don't want to tinker too much and that that just shows. Like, you're, you really don't know what to play, how to play it. You know, you, you need more practice with the deck, I feel, if you're still tinkering with it a couple of days before a big event you're going to. And I think when you're making a deck choice and you want to lock it in, be sure. Yeah. Be really, really confident. Be like, nope, I'm playing this.
1: Yeah. Just lock your deck selection in and accept that between, like, the time you lock it in and the time the decks, deck lists are collected, accept the fact that it is possible that some changes have happened to the format in that, you know, stretch of time that has made, uh, has made it so that, oh, man, maybe this extra card would have helped. It, it might have. But you gotta, you, in my mind, I, I accept that. I accept that somebody might have figured out the right threat split on Murktide, but I'd rather, for every one time that happens, there's a thousand tournaments where it doesn't. And for me, I'd rather have that peace of mind and that confidence knowing that I'm not scrambling to make changes. It shouldn't cost you your peace. Because what matters is that you can go into round one, calm, collected, ready to go. And that's one of the things about tournament prep that matters so much. And that's like, I know this matters to you. It matters to me a lot. Is preparing well for a tournament gives you a better chance of doing well in that tournament.
0: 100%. Yeah.
1: Showing up, scrambled, having to have looked for a card that you decided to swap into your deck late last night because you didn't have it put together yet, or kind of writing out your deck list in the last 5 minutes before round before the players meeting scrambling to write it out even if everything goes exactly right for you in those situations you're starting round 1 your heart rate's up you're stressed about stuff that isn't playing magic you're you're focused on all these other things and then round timer starts and now you have to get yourself down to a place where you can be playing really tight magic and that's hard man
0: yeah I mean that's the one thing that I learned like starting to play more and more high level events and you know a lot of that was making sure you have everything before you get to the tournament because one of the things that you never want to do it's tough sometimes you win these games sometimes you don't but I've had a lot of match ones where I just have the jitters Because it's other things, I I'm worrying about. I'm nervous. My heart rates up. Like you said, I'm worrying about stuff that doesn't matter. What I need to be focusing on is me playing my opponent. You know, afterwards I get into it and it's better. But it's so much better for you just sit down in front of your round one opponent and be like, "Let's go play some magic." It's going to be a lot of fun, and you don't have to worry about all the trivial BS. Exactly. All right. That yeah, is pretty
1: cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I think that gives us a good idea of specifically a bit on deck selection. How what, what sort of things you should be keeping in your mind when you're picking a deck for an event?
0: Yeah, I love talking about this and I love sharing it with people because it's one of those things that I don't think people talk about enough.
1: No, no, I think people talk about a lot of stuff. But I think a lot of people leave percentage points on the table on things that you can, like deck selection, that you can really backload. You don't have Mm -hmm. to be dealing with deck selection stuff the weekend of your event, right? You can backload that. So a lot of this tournament prep stuff, and we've got plenty more of this, plenty more tournament prep stuff topics to discuss. Mm -hmm. A lot of all of these tournament prep things, the unifying factor on them is that they
0: don't have to be done the Friday night before the event. And they shouldn't be. No, they shouldn't be.
1: These are all things that you can do the week before, so that you can take all of that extra stuff that's not playing tight magic and say, Be gone, Thought, get away from my magic weekend. I'm not yep. worrying about booking a <laughs> hotel the night before. I've got I had that ship booked for a month. And believe me, like I, I love handling that stuff, so I've got plenty of things to share on that aspect
0: of it i I think it 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 comes down to there's a lot of things that aren't magic based that need to go in a tournament prep yeah we spoke a lot about like you know what deck you're bringing you know how are you going to play it what goes into those decisions but there's so many other things where you just have to realize like do i have a place to stay who am i going with did i eat you know things you need to focus on instead of just like hey i'm here to play magic it's like you got to keep your your mind sharp Mm-hmm. and be able to play to the best of your ability because you took care of all the other things before.
1: And for me personally, that I feel like is one of my strengths is I get to pick up percentage points that people leave on the table all the time just by having my, if the events on a Saturday, I have all my Sunday through Thursday shit together before.
0: Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah.
1: So I pick up those percentage points that other people are leaving on the table. You want to talk about your four percentage point Jedi mind trick line in the game. Guess what? I got a full night's sleep last night. You left mm-hmm. your house at three in the morning because
0: you didn't book a hotel. Yeah. look, I'm, um, I'm, I'm in my thirties. I ain't fucking around. Like <laughs> I'd, I'd rather have all this shit taken care of.
1: <laughs> I'm in my age redacted. So I know exactly how you feel.
0: <laughs> oh, everybody knows you're a vampire.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I think that we've got. I'm really excited about this segment. I think we've got a lot of stuff that we can really share and be helpful on. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to add before we uh, we call it on this uh, section of tournament prep?
0: Uh, no. I think that'll be it. Sounds awesome, man. All right. So we have a very special guest here. Uh, our good friend Jordan is going to run us through a deck he's played a lot, um, and it's mono green Tron. Uh, But first, uh, would you like to introduce yourself, Mr. Jordan?
2: Hey, everyone. It's Jordan Green. I'm a Magic player in the Lexington, General Central Kentucky area. And I am the person that always refuses to play the best deck in the format and instead uh, chooses to do nothing on turn one and turn two and then hope that uh, ambiguously costed large spells are good enough to win games.
0: Yeah, count one, two, seven. That's That's, that's what I learned in school. That's the
2: classic Tron way. Yeah.
1: And, like, I'm glad you're here, Jordan, because, like, Tron's, like, such a good entry point into the modern format. Um, But Kyle and I are, like, absolutely hopeless mid range players. So, us trying to walk anyone through Tron would be, um, I'd go with the phrase laughably inept.
0: Yes, I played the mid range version of this deck with Eldrazi Tron, so I didn't even do Tron right. I just decided to play four
2: fours instead of winning the game.
0: Yeah, exactly. That sounds more fun.
2: That's the Etron Tron way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, Yeah, worth noting that uh, the Tron deck that we're describing today, uh, there is a primer for it that we've put together, and the link to that is going to be available in the show notes. So uh, if you are listening and there's a part that sounds interesting and you kind of want us to go on a deeper dive, we did. We went on a deeper dive already. Uh, And if you just go into the show notes, the link to the primer is there. That is free for anyone to view as they'd like. So Jordan, consider me like complete ingenue. What are just like the basic goals of Tron in the modern format? What's it trying to accomplish?
2: Yeah, I think Tron is a deck that very successfully does nothing and everything at the same time. It it's a deck that obviously if you've grown if you've grown up playing modern kind of in the last couple years may not seem appealing as we're so used to seeing hyper interactive decks that have many plays at many stages of the game that are full of cards that are good generally instead of good that cards that are good at selective times in the game state. Tron is very much a deck that tries to accomplish a side quest for the first couple of turns of the game and then just absolutely forget that your opponent is playing Magic. You can attack their resources both on board, their mana sources, their sources in hand, and just create a game state that is unwinnable for your opponent
0: yeah and no, i i think uh one thing to talk about tron too is like it's i think like a bunch of decks put together like it's been described as a control deck a combo deck you know just you, you have this wish board with Karn the great creator now which has become pretty stock in mono green tron uh and i think that tron is a deck where you know it's pretty easy. You can explain the basis of it, and some people can fall into wins with it.
2: I think Karn the Great Creator is definitely a card that both improve the average strength of the deck, but also improved the average difficulty of the deck because your lines to winning games, especially when on the back foot, are going to be through Karn the Great Creator. And sometimes it's not the easiest until you've played the deck a lot to know how to maximize your opportunities at each state presented to you by your opponents and yourself but Karn the Great Creator was a huge printing for this deck. I think the deck was struggling week in and week out to provide meaningful results, and now the deck has some what we would call free matchups due to Karn the Great Creator just existing, and now it has some legs and some bad matchups like Burn and its ability to go find very corner case artifacts that before you couldn't really justify having a slot in your 75 that now are incredibly powerful in the matchup.
0: Yeah, I feel like with Karn the Great Creator... Uh, in the deck, it kind of gives you, because before it was like play Karn Liberated on turn three or Worm Coil, you know, have these big, big turns. And then, you know, if your opponent has answers or if you get aggroed out, it's kind of like, well, I do the thing or I don't. With Karn, the Great Creator, I feel like you have a lot more grind and just having all of those silver bullets in your Karn package helps the deck like a ton.
1: Yeah, you just have so much play in places where you kind of didn't have that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that makes a big difference in the deck's ability to, like, kind of, when plan A doesn't go off without a hitch, still be able to take meaningful game actions. Yeah,
2: Tron's win percentage against the wild nakadals and goblin Guides of the world was incredibly low before the deck could go just resolve a Chalice of the Void and ensnaring Bridge on turn three without worsening its 60 against the field.
1: Oh, yeah, and I recall very specifically um, you playing Tron in uh, a team event with us, and uh, Car and the Great Creator generated one of those free wins you were talking about when you p- resolved the Car and the Great Creator against that uh, Dice Factory deck that is just full of artifacts that need to activate abilities. Yeah, it turns
2: <laughs> out decks that rely on the activated abilities of artifacts just completely lose to the card.
0: Yeah, we didn't even mention the static ability, everyone's favorite text on a Planeswalker uh, on Karn the Great Creator, where it's just it you don't even have to read it, it just says, Artifacts, get out of here. Like, just... <laughs> There's a
2: reason the Urza creature that was so powerful and modern for a while just doesn't see much play anymore, and a lot of it is due to the fact that you have to build a deck that will rely on the activated ability of Artifacts. And Karn the Great Creator has played in just enough percentage of decks in the metagame that it's you risk just losing your tournament to getting paired to Karn the Great Creator.
0: Yeah, but yeah, now that we've talked like about what Karn the Great Creator does, but what are some of the other big like spells you want to be casting once you you hit Tron?
2: Yeah, I think obviously when people see big mana decks, they want to know what the payoff is. And Wormcoil Engine is a modern format stable, going all the way back to the modern modern formats inception. Almost, you know, this is this is a card that not only is a great huge threat but plays a great role in catching you up in games that you're behind like against aggro decks it's incredibly good against any deck that does not have a removal spell that exiles uh jun players can relate to being internally frustrated that Worm is a card that exists and it it presents such a unique threat that not only will just pressure you in the card in and it of itself but your opponent can never, almost never answer it efficiently, especially when you consider that Wormcall Engine isn't the only threat that you're going to pre- present during the game state. It's, it's not like you hit Tron you cast Wormcall and that's all you have and you hope it's enough. This deck will pressure you and, and its best draw is just resolve 6 or 7 mana plus spells every turn for the rest of the game. Uh, outside of that Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger is just an absurd magic card. Uh, Cash triggers are very good. In a deck that's full of cards that want to get countered, cash triggers are very good, especially considering that in the modern metagame now, we're not seeing decks that have five and six islands on the battlefield. In fact, often they're trying to counterspell you off two or three blue sources on a given state. So Ulamog can just take away their blue sources and allow you to resolve threats after this has went on the stack.
0: Yeah, I I feel like Ulamog is just one of those cards in Tron that like everyone fears. Because with Wyrmcoil, like... Some decks can, you know, you can grind through it. It's not going to be easy, but it's not like like you said, where it's you slam a worm coil and you're good. When you slam Ulamog, even if it gets countered, it's just backbreaking most of the time.
2: And you and you do still have to counter it. Yeah, yeah. It also has an attack trigger that ends the game.
0: <laughs> yeah, like every line of text on that card is terrifying to your opponent.
2: <laughs> yeah, just read the flavor text on Ulamog. You you do not want that thing to resolve.
1: Oh, yo, I do not know what the flavor text on Ulamog is. is Hold a on.
2: A force as voracious as time itself. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, that card is terrifying. <laughs> but uh, all this said, I mean, and obviously, we can talk about big mana decks and how great it is to resolve your spells. Um, this deck also has. A- printed at the same time as ulamog a great utility card that is one of the reasons i feel like i want to play this deck in the modern metagame and that's warping whale warping whale is just fantastic it turns out that the card has just gotten consistently better specifically with modern horizons and modern horizons 2 because there's just so many obnoxiously powerful one toughness or power creatures or sorceries that people are trying to resolve right now and warping whale does a great job of checking the format
0: yeah i mean the every line of text on that card has just gotten better over the past like year just the fact that it can exile the the one drops in murktide like i mean it's it gets it gets rid of the best card in modern young wolf for good
1: (laughs) would you stop
0: (laughs) i will never stop but um like yeah and, and the the fact that it can counter you can counter sorcery spells in your tron deck with a colorless spell is just crazy to me like that's super relevant yeah it
2: both helps in your draws where you're stumbling a little maybe it might give you an extra turn mm-hmm. or two but also your most powerful draw which is just natural tron in the opener where you don't have to cast any spells to get there it is the best thing you can possibly have with that because you can just go tron land tron land have warping well up and be ready to go into your big mana spells after that
0: and it makes jump blockers as well which is which is super super relevant you know in in the aggro matchups yeah it also
2: in steps you can you can do the mana generation ability and be able to cast an ugin on what is normally your seven mana turn it is incredibly flexible and very good I, i i think there's an argument for that card to go up and count maybe even to three copies in the main depending on what the metagame
0: you're expecting is yeah i've seen two to three like in a lot of lists and you know i i don't fault any tron player like that would put a bunch of those because it's just so super super relevant in the yeah yeah like
2: we said the primer will be linked to this and you can read we put a list of each case where it's incredibly relevant and you would be shocked how many of the top Mm -hmm. 10 or 15 decks can get destroyed by just one well-positioned warping well
1: yeah and and a wide purpose answer is like really important in modern like people are playing yeah, Archmage's charm because of how flexible it is at answering different things, right? It's, it's able to answer small things on the board, it's able to counter a spell, it's able to just cycle for two cards instead of one. So, like, flexibility and being able to answer a lot of things is just really important in a format that's as, as wide and unpredictable as modern.
0: Yeah, especially when every, you know, modern deck right now, like, every spell creature you know planeswalker it just doesn't do one thing it just has like multiple things that it does where it's just like some of it's a removal some of its ramp some of it draws cards it's not just like oh here's a creature or here's a spell like everything is modal at this point and you know warping Well has just been great and i mean Etron played it forever for those reasons and it wasn't like great in the meta but it was just another thing to play but now that mono green has it it's just it helps the deck so so much
1: just the best thing you're going to be doing at that, that two mana slot for no green.
2: And I think there's like a bias against Green Tron with players that play the format because it's both um not revered by old heads that play the format because it was kind of like a bad guy deck back in like 2015 where you remembering like Green Red Tron and it was kind of like a bad guy deck that was trying to just cheat and go over the top of the format. And now with newer players especially it's a deck that has Basically, zero cards from the Modern Horizons era of the game, but has somehow become steadily better because the Modern Horizons metagame has just fitted itself to being answered by some of Tron's best cards.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, like the MH1 and MH2, like being printed into the format, like it helped Tron, but not with anything that they got for the deck. It was just like the metagame formed, and everybody's like, hey, Tron's really good right now. Yeah, people want to
2: ba- win off the back of like hooking a hammer to a one-one off the back of Ragavan or off the back of incredibly powerful sorceries right now. I mean, Footfalls, Living in Creativity—they all have incredibly powerful game state-dependent sorceries, and Tron is just actually well, well-built to handle at least one copy of it, and then its game plan can take over.
1: Now, Jordan, you were talking about Warping Whale and how important it is to have access to that. I want to talk about the flex slots because in Tron, the core of the deck takes up a lot of the slots you have in your 75, right? The base core cards that you need in every Tron deck to do what it needs to do take up a lot. So you don't have a ton of flex slots to mess around with. What are some of the like flexiest parts of that, I guess is what I want to say.
0: Yeah, What 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 can you cut? Yeah, what can you cut? What, what are like, you know, you have to have four or a play set of or obviously it's the Tron lands and all that stuff but what wiggle room do you have with like, hey, in this tournament I might see this or that, I can move some stuff around.
2: Yeah, now. like you were saying, unfortunately we play a deck where 20 of the non non lands are completely the only reason they're there is to get to Tron. So, you know you start there, mm-hmm. you need at least 12 payoffs in the main deck. We're talking Planeswalkers are the over-the-top creature threats. So ultimately what you leave yourself with is where you're looking for utility against the format. Um, what I've been happy to see over the last month or two, as far as people who are still getting results with the deck, is that Thrag Tusk has been completely left out, which I always thought was correct. I think Tusk was the case of people trying to make their deck too good against the field and taking away from its overall power. The unfortunate truth is that Burn is just... You're either going to find your way through Car the Great Creator, or you're going to lose. And Thragtusk was so bad against so many other decks in the meta game that it just wasn't worth to play. So now we're looking at a deck that plays um, some number, normally two or three Relic of Progenitus in the main, which is synergizes heavily with Car the Great Creator, and at worst is a is a redraw. It has some very good matchups like Living End. So you can definitely debate. I mean, do you want to play a two three of that Um, oblivion stone also is a reactive spell in the deck that can help catch you up to some pretty rough board states and answers something that is a problem for the deck and unfortunately seeing more play raid, which is blood moon those are the kind of cards you can play around with i would say warping whale relic of virginis and oblivion stone kind of have a ambiguous two or three beside them depending on what deck list you look at and i'll be honest as well unfortunately it's been a couple years and Karn Liberated is while good and and one of the plays you can make on that initial Tron turn, definitely a card that you could see cutting a copy of down to three if you're looking to be a little more suited to the metagame. Karn presents raw power, but if you want to try and fit in a card somewhere, I think that's a spot you could as well. Oh, that's super
1: cool. That's just like, you know, sacred cows make the best hamburger and all that. Like, I just... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It just never occurred to me that cutting one of your Karn liberated was even an option.
0: Yeah, and no, a lot of people have talked about that, too, with, with Tron. You know, it's just, it's just it's just been one of those Sacred Cows forever, where it's like, no, you have to have Liberated in the deck. And then, you know, it's like turn six and you play one with like 12 mana available. And like, I wish this was something else. Like, it's just not what it used to be. Yeah, playing
2: Tron, you're gonna find yourself in a lot of board states where you're behind when you untap on three, and unfortunately, Karn can Karn obviously answers one thing, but when your opponent has like multiple Delirium DRCs on board or multiple threats in their yagmon deck on board, you're gonna feel like this card's a little thin. So I I would never cut it from the deck entirely, but I think you could you could play with only playing three in a given metagame.
0: That game. That's fair. Now, now I think the biggest question with uh a deck like tron is how do you play around hate for the deck because the, the post sideboard games you know everybody has something for tron whether it's like a little bit in the main deck or just in the sideboards like i'm going to this event i know a lot of the people i know i'm going to see tron how do i beat
2: yeah so like we mentioned before with the primer there's a great section on there that'll talk about dealing with each color the game and how they approach the Tron matchup, be it, you know, Red wants to play Blood Moon effects primarily, or even Alpine Moon out of some of the more aggressive decks. Blue is looking to counter your big spells before they can get a clock on board. There is a mixture of mainboard and sideboard cards that give you, with Tron, it's normally just enough time to get that clear advantage. One well-placed Warping Well or Veil of Summer can definitely get you to where their interaction won't matter anymore, because a lot of Tron's interaction or the interaction that's good against Tron, needs to stop the thing from happening at all. When you resolve the first thing, it taxes them so brutally that the second and third thing are so much easier to get going. I, I would say, like, Warping Will is definitely the card you will see be the best against now. We're seeing things like Turn 2 Blood Moons, Magus of the Moons, Necromentias because of a Ragavan hit. Warping Will is your best card against Ragavan. Warping Will can also counter the Sorcery-based ones. And then uh, don't forget about how great of utility your lands offer you now. One of the newest cards being played in Tron is Boseju, which is typically a one-of in the main, and sometimes there's a second copy in the board. Boseju is a great card that you can go find off Expedition Map or Sylvan Scrying that can give you an out if you have a forest on board of blowing up a Blood Moon at instant speed and untapping and getting back to your game plan.
0: Yeah, Boseju really helped uh give Tron some grind in like the post board games because just the fact that Tron can just go get a land f- from like the the third expedition map and just go blow up the blood moon or something is just super super impactful and I think even with a blood moon isn't exactly like a an auto win against Tron too because I've seen a lot of people play blood Moon against Tron like I got this and then they just make their sixth land drop hard cast a worm coil and they're like I I'm still going to lose, even uh, though I, they just I have mountains. Yeah, it's like, I don't got this. Like, that's a big worm engine. Like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I've tapped eight non-basic lands for red and Castanugan before, but...
0: that That is technically a legal play, so yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: Blast Zone also has become pretty familiar in the deck as a one or two of mm-hmm. that. A little slower, uh, Blast Zone lines are going to require that your opponent isn't clocking you aggressively, but that can always help too, as long as the problem is not Blood Moon or Magus of the Moon, the, the Blast Zone will not have that ability. Yeah, if it's
1: Alpine Moon, Blast Zone is a really good, clean answer to it, and it can answer it the turn it comes
2: down. Yeah, we also men- mentioned in the primer, uh, we're seeing Lavinia, Zorius Renegade get picked up as a and played in some of the weird four or five pillar aggro decks so Last them can help you there too
0: yeah and it's a sideboard um card out of uh, a hammer Yeah, blue hammer um, most well. of the time so yeah um i guess the the next question would be like uh the first would be what are what would your bad matchups be and then what would um you know your 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 better matchups yeah
2: be? so i think uh, and me and anthony agreed on this going into that team tournament we talked about prior we felt good about the ragavan decks the matchup wasn't that bad Mm. you just felt like yeah ragavan hits you two or three times as long as they don't like cast your a in the great creator that they flipped out of your deck or you know they back it up with other threats you can just pretty easily go over the top answer the ragavan and move on now we're seeing the the like quote mid-range i mean murk ties the tempo deck but quote mid-range ragavan decks start playing two to three blood Mm. moons in the main and additional copies in the sideboard so what went from being a matchup you'd like to see in like murk tide or red black is now a lot more speculative and i that i know that sounds like a pretty good reason to not play the deck but i also think the deck has some play um other matchups you don't want to see i obviously blue white control is one of those matchups where if you ask strong players they want to play against it, and if you ask blue white control players they want to play against it the deck's interact very interestingly together
0: (laughs) yeah that's the uh the you ask the burn player and you ask the death shadow player who has the better matchup it's just like it depends who you talk to yeah so
2: uh, you know there's definitely matchups in the format that are are bad but what what is a great calling card to tron is how many matchups feel like you can't lose there are so many decks that are built on existing on an axis that tron just destroys in most games i mean decks decks like hammer time you normally have enough legs to deal with the early game and then they're their things just don't activate correctly. They don't have the lines that they want to have. You know, you get a Karn the Great Creator out on them and you go get you go get an ensnaring bridge. All of a sudden their only way to win the game is gone. They can't equip their hammer with their pure steel on board. Um, creativity is another is another matchup where as long as you're not getting, you know, the classic both say six their deck just doesn't do enough
0: and i I can attest i can attest with the yawgmoth matchup against tron is awful uh myself as the yawgmoth player i I have had many a times where i have a turn four combo and my opponent gets turn three tron and, and they get karn the great creator and they get pithing needle and i cry so it's just it's the ultimate like here's a mid rangey creaturey combo deck and then here's uh big beefy boys on turn three and four and it's just I just miserable. go way over the top. Of I'm happy. Way, that way over the top.
2: Pivoted from playing a deck that was bad to Tron from to playing a deck that's bad against Tron, so they can continue to complain. I'm happy for them. It's a healthy way yep. to go about playing Magic. <laughs> Tom. And then uh, you know the free spell decks obviously you 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 have access to so many great tutor targets be it you know, Chalice of the Void, ways to just undo what they've done. I mean, at the end of the day, Footfalls and Living End are a deck that, while they can do their effect at instant speed, they have to untap, they have to attack you. Normally, one attack isn't ending the game, and your deck is just full of ways to answer the board they've presented. And the second Footfalls, the second end is a lot worse than the first, once the game has had time to kind of accrue resources. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and also we talked a lot about Warping Whale is, is uh in this episode already, and this is just another situation where Warping Whale is just super good. Oh my God, what a it's blowout. just such a yeah. blowout. <laughs> uh,
2: another deck that I think definitely deserves to be talked about, I think it's a really good option right now, is Grinding Station. Carn the Great Creator puts quite a bit of pressure on Grinding Station. It, it makes yeah. their it makes it hard for them, and obviously they, they have threats, Ragavan and Ledger Shredder that can Attack the Karn and set them up for a good turn. So you need to be aware of the threats on board. But if you're able to navigate that and have some time between, you know, graveyard interaction, Karn the Great Creator puts them in a really tough bind on winning the game.
0: Yeah, I mean they they have like that you know quote unquote fair backup plan. But if there's uh you know using so much of the resources to get rid of Karn the Great Creator, like you know when you drop any of your you know big payoffs, it's just Super backbreaking for him. There's
2: also like a lot of mid-range players always worry about that unknown ten percent, the ten percent of the format where you have no idea. Your opponent sits down, plays a card, and you have to read it. Tron is incredible in those situations. Tron just goes over the top. It pressures everything they do. Tron is very good when people bring lesser-known pet decks to a tournament.
0: Yeah, you don't even have to read the cards. You just do your thing. Yeah,
2: your text box is blank. That's a uh, that's an effect that I like to call taking out the trash. <laughs> and
1: I know that's like disparaging or whatever. <laughs> but like like I like playing decks that are good at taking out the trash. You're you
2: round one through three opponents that are playing blue white charbelcher. Like I don't want to lose to blue white charbelcher. Yeah, so uh just dodge Mill and uh you you can find your way on most of your matchups.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess the next topic would just be it's the I think the most important part of playing Tron is Mulligan. Yeah, oh, it yeah. turns out that a
2: rules change to how magic functions just egregiously benefited some strategies more than others. And while I support the rules change, combo decks and Tron, which you could argue is a combo deck, really benefited from the London Mulligan. And it changed how you approach the deck on before the game began.
0: Yeah, I mean, any deck that just wants to assemble a a certain order of cards or certain types of cards in you know, your opening hand, like the London Mulligan just helped so, so much.
1: Yeah, Mulligans still hurt the critical mass decks, like mm-hmm. Elves. Like a Mulligan to six means that Elves has one less card to do stuff with. Decks that want to do something very specific with their first few turns... To get them on the right track and then it doesn't matter, like Tron, they can mulligan to to four and still just execute their plan A without
2: any concession. Yeah, Tron, Tron is probably the only deck in the format that can win with four cards. Just they they they, they yeah. four useful cards and they won. People have won games with one card liberated.
0: Yep. Yeah. Very true. And you know, it's just it's one of those decks that Plays super well off the top too. Like you can mull, mull on the five, four, three, and just you're whatever you draw. Like boom, here we go, and you you're off to the races. From the
2: format, and it's not close. I, oh, I yeah. think a lot about mulliganing, though. I mean, obviously, once we once we got this new rule set, we had to learn to train ourselves to get a little bit more aggressive and know how to rate the quality of our hands because we can really be aggressive in getting our game plan underfoot. Kind of the level two to your mulligan decisions is doing the best you can in game one to just get a raw, powerful hand. And after that, in your boarded games, knowing how your matchups are going to go and knowing what your hands need to look like. When you're playing against decks that present things like Thoughtseize, you know that you can't just rely on that two Tron lands and a map when you're on the draw. You have to know to mulligan. Mm -hmm in the context of your matchups. And I think that's where the argument about how aggressive are you going to be in your mulligan decisions gets a lot more interesting.
1: Because uh, in, in those Thoughtseize matchups, normally mulligans are so bad because they're like, Thoughtseize anything and you're down two cards if you mulliganed once. One from the mulligan, one from the thought seas, and those two cards really matter if you're playing a mid-rangey deck. But if you're playing Tron and you have two Tron lands, two maps, and that's your four card hand, and they Thought Seize you on one, that Thought sees didn't do anything.
0: Yeah, it, it it didn't it it actually was worse. It was basically like one mana shock myself.
1: Yeah, yeah. It it because the card quantity doesn't matter yeah. as much. Mm-hmm. So, Jordan, as far as mulliganing goes, what what, is, what does a seven need to look like to be good enough for you to keep on seven?
2: On seven, you I like to, even in the dark, I like to see at least two Tron lands with a redundant way to find Tron, and at least normally a threat though you can keep threatless hands this deck sees a lot of cards chromatic star and sphere might look like the jankiest cards to be played as a format all-star its entire time but you see cards ancient stirrings is an ancient Mm -hmm. stirrings is still one of the most powerful draw spells in the format and that it gets you a great look at finding something that you need be it a land or a payoff or an answer you can get warping whale off of an ancient Stirrings. you can get artifacts you can get planeswalkers this this deck has better draw spells than people think but definitely in the dark for a seven to be good enough it needs to present obvious draw and to me that's like a redundant way to find it
1: yeah there's a there's a joke uh where if you see your opponent mulligan and then mulligan again you're just like oh man my win percentage goes up once they're once they mulligan to five you're like yeah this is feeling good and
2: then they mulligan to
0: four, and you go, "Oh <laughs> yeah. no!" Somehow you're they're on Tron. Yep. So that that actually happened. It was um, at a one k, uh, and this guy kept mulliganing. and He mulliganed to four, and the whole time he's like, "Oh man, this is gonna suck. It's tough." And I'm sitting next to him, like, "Well, it depends on what you're you're playing. Like, it'll be all right." And then you know the round starts, and he goes tower map I'm like okay you have no right to complain you're going to dumpster your opponent you <laughs> exactly. are a villain. like how dare you like you you are supposed to do that
2: <laughs> but uh yeah i think i think tron is definitely when you're making mulligan decisions your card density matters less than any other deck in the format but it doesn't just not matter when 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 you've backed yourself into a corner of well i have tron maybe or i have tron but i only have one threat you need to know that this format is incredibly interactive just sacrificing raw card density to have like you, you can't just look for natural tron that's that's not a great way to play the deck
0: no yeah all right uh, i guess the the next question would be when should you play tron when is it good when would it be a good like meta call or just you know time to dust off those those old border antiquity tron lands and try to let's try to get some get some yeah, people this is <laughs> the,
2: the part of podcast that i didn't want to get to because
0: unfortunately
2: i'm starting to worry about green tron's viability in the metagame that we're seeing at this very instant like like we mentioned before we're, we're seeing racto scam or not uptick and be considered one of the very best options in the format murktide is just obviously the most popular deck it's probably being played 15 to 20 percent of people playing online right now are just queuing with murktide and reaping the benefits so you need to be aware of the fact that you can just be seeing turn two Blood Moons and turn two Necromanches out of a lot of the format right now. That being said, any time this format skews back towards wanting to play a lot of footfalls, a lot of Living End, this deck is so well positioned to answer that. It is so well positioned to deal with that. So if we ever see, a, you know, something gets printed that either will answer the threat presented by some of these mid-range ear decks that are, or a new deck enters the format, and no longer can they play these main deck blood moons. I think that's what we need to look for more so. Tron will be a better option,
0: yeah, that's fair, and I think that's um how Tron has been for its entire existence in modern I feel where it's there there are some times where it's like if if you know how to play the deck, it's your deck, this is all you play you, you like you're gonna force it you you can you can do well, but there's always gonna be. Meta games where it's just like we've all seen meta games are like yeah Tron's just unplayable right now. There's just so much hate for it. It's enemy number one. And then there are times, you know, I, I could say like a couple of months ago, where it's just like Tron came along in a few tournaments and I'm like oh wow, I don't think a lot of us can beat this right now.
2: Yeah, and being a person that your favorite deck is Tron could be kind of tough, right, with the format because normally the whims of the format have nothing to do with Tron. Tron, Tron is not the reason that we've seen this uptick in Blood Moons. To be fair, people are trying no. to beat Urza Saga. People are trying to beat Triome based, Shockland based mana bases from creativity living in footballs. Leyline binding is why Blood Moon has has become a great main deck card. It is not because Tron is. Seven percent of the metagame right now. So you have to be able to read what's happening around you in the metagame and know if yes. Tron is a good option.
0: And honestly, I think you know this might sound weird, but it it I think it's a healthy format when Blood Moon is doing something like that because we we've all played in those Arkham Astrolabe you know, modern days where it's just Blood Moon was just completely irrelevant and it was just if blood if Blood Moon isn't getting people and you know five four and five color decks are just playing through it then there's a problem, but yeah, I mean, Yogmoth is playing Magus in the moon out of the sideboard sometimes mainly because of creativity and, you know, like just because everybody's trying to play Leyline binding with all these triumphs. Uh, I think that's going to do it. If uh, you have anything else to say on Tron, you know, uh, anything else, but uh, if you want to let know, let uh, everybody know where they could find you and uh, what, what you're doing magic wise.
2: Last words, I would say Tron is a great deck that very much rewards you for becoming more familiar with it. I would not just kind of pick up the deck and expect to just roll over everyone. The, the game states are more complicated now, so definitely pick it up, learn it, learn how to maximize cards like Karn the Great Creator. It, it's a very fun deck to play now. It has a lot of rewarding lines and a lot of fun game states that may seem dirty, but really put your opponent in a lose-lose scenario. But yeah, as far as I go, uh, looking forward to this RCQ season, looking forward to getting out and playing on some weekends, maybe playing some Tron, maybe we can get these Blood Moons out of here, and maybe we can resolve some Karns, (laughs) but yeah, I'm excited about Paper Magic is back, and we can make content, we can all see our friends, and be excited about this year that's coming up.
0: Oh, I'm so hyped, yeah. Oh yeah I'm, I'm so excited to be getting back into
2: it yeah so Jordan thank you so much for explaining
0: yeah, this thanks. because like this was helpful I feel
1: like I feel like I can like I under I, I've I've played Tron and after this conversation I feel like I can play Tron better than I could have before this conversation and we didn't really spend too long on it like we were what you know half an hour just a good talk and I think that's an important thing to know it's just like Talking to people about the game in a constructive and realistic way just makes such a big difference in your ability to, to find the right line when there's an actual match with stakes on the line. Yeah, just a reminder that we do have a primer that uh, Jordan helped put together, and that's going to be available. The link to that is in the show notes. You're going to notice a lot of the stuff we talked about here is uh, available right there in the primer but we do expand on it uh, quite a bit. And it even has a sideboard guide uh, for a lot of the big decks that show up in the modern format.
0: And yeah. Uh, thank you so much yeah, for thanks. spending some time with us, Jordan. And Hey, uh, I think I can speak for all of us. It's always great to sit down and talk about magic. And I think we're all just happy to be able to do this, talk about it, give people some knowledge on playing certain decks for actual paper magic tournaments. And I think that's the best part. Oh yeah. All right. And yep, thanks thank a you. lot, Jordan. Thank you. Signing off from Lexington. I'm Kyle. I'm Anthony. And until next week, do us a favor. Stay trashing, my friends.